calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today is a super special episode where I'm going to be talking with author Logan Steiner. So Logan, her book has just come out this week. It's called After Anne, and it is a historical fiction novel about the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery, aka L.M. Montgomery, the author of Anne of Green Gables and lots of other books. And I was really intrigued when I first heard about this book because I knew a bit about the life of Lucy Maud Montgomery because I am a person who lives in Canada and she's, you know, one of our national icons. And I was interested to see this developed into a work of historical fiction, especially when I read more about what Logan was doing. And so Lucy Maud Montgomery's diaries were published after her death. She wanted them to be published. She like rewrote them. So with that in mind, but she didn't include everything. And so what Logan's book does, and we talk about this in the interview, is imagines, well, what was in those pages that maybe she, that she took out of those books? What are, what are the parts of her life that even after her death, she didn't want anybody to know about? So I was really interested to see that. And also I asked on the Instagram a few weeks ago, Instagram.com, it's a vulgar history pod. I was just curious. I asked in my stories about what people's thoughts were about Anne of Green Gables, just as I was getting ready to talk to Logan Steiner and everybody (laughs) from different countries, people from Ireland and the US and all kinds of places have such fond memories of Anne of Green Gables, the the CBC series, or there's the more recent Anne with an E series, and of course the books themselves. Like I know that these books are so beloved by so many people all around the world. The author and her life story is maybe less known. But she's the author of these beloved books. So I think it's really interesting that Logan chose to write this book about her and had a really good time talking with her about it. And I do just want to give a content warning. Lucy Maud Montgomery, her death, she probably died by suicide. And so there is some discussion of suicide in what I talked to Logan about. But here's my conversation with Logan Steiner. Okay, so I'm joined today by Logan Steiner. Welcome, Logan. Thank you. So good to be here, Anne. 
Yeah. So we're talking about your book that's just come out. It's called After Anne, and it's a novel about Lucy Maud Montgomery, the author of the Anne of Green Gables books. And so my first question is, first of all, you're American. Is that right? I am. Okay. I'm, I'm in Canada. So I'm just curious what your experience was of the Anne of Green Gables books that led you to a point of wanting to write this novel. I treasured the Anne of Green Gables books growing up. So my I was very close to my grandparents who lived in small town Iowa, and I would go visit them every summer. My grandma introduced me to the Anne of Green Gables books. I remember reading the whole series in her house, have read them many times since, um, and then just devoured you know everything by Ella Montgomery that I could find. And then watched the CBC series too with my grandma. I remember many tear-filled afternoons spent in her house uh, watching that series together. And I had such a strong connection to the Anne of Green Gables character. I think my whole life I've I've struggled with um, putting myself out there and you know self doubt. And I just I loved you know, Anne of Green Gables and her vibrancy and also her unfiltered ways. That was so much a way of being that I that I wanted to adopt for myself. You know, her dreams of writing her um, the vastity, those things were so appealing to me. And her real, you know, deep care, care for Matthew and Marilla, that relationship reminded me of my relationship with my grandparents. So really special place in my heart. And you mentioned that you like you read all the Anne books and then you went on to read the other books that she's written as well, because I know there's like the Emily series and then what's called like the Blue Castle, I think, which is almost like an adult book a bit. Yes. Um, and the Story Girl, which is one of Ellen Montgomery's favorites as well. So um, she's written 20 novels and then was prolific. I mean, she published hundreds of stories and poems as well. It's just, it's really interesting to me, like as a Canadian person to see the effect that Anne Green Gables has on people from other countries as well. Because sometimes I don't know if it's just like, this is a really big thing here or if it's like, oh no, people from all over know it. And like, as a child, I remember I went on a trip to um, Prince Edward Island and it was international tourists. There's people there from, you know, Japan and all kinds of places. And I'm like, oh, this isn't just famous in Canada. This is like everyone around the world loves Anne of Green Gables. Yes, it's so striking, right? I visited as well when I was doing research and just amazing. I mean, a huge following in the Netherlands, like you said, in Japan, across you know the UK, it makes sense as well, but then a huge American following too. And I think what I found in, in the States in particular, people have heard of Anne of Green Gables, but people don't know as much about Ellen Montgomery, the author. Um, I think my understanding is that in Canada, she's a lot like Mark Twain is here. You know, this, she became almost a celebrity um, that has continued to have that celebrity status where she was a public figure as well as this, you know, as, as the creator of a famous character. And I think here in the States, a lot of people that I, that I meet know the name Anna Green Gables, but they don't know the name Ellen Montgomery. It's interesting to me. I sort of, think of Ella Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables in a similar way to like Louisa May Alcott and Joe March. But I think people think 
they know about Louisa May Alcott because Joe March is a writer and she had sisters like she did. So it's like the stories are similar, whereas Anne Green Gables and the other books that Ella Montgomery wrote were not autobiographical in the same way. So she's a bit more arm's length, I think. That's right. That's right. I do think that Anne in some ways served as an alter ego for Maude, you know, that there were emotions. Maude was certainly a precocious and wildly imaginative uh, little girl who I think experienced a lot of loneliness in childhood, a lot of the same sorts of feelings that Anne did. So I think there are emotional resonances there, but certainly, you know, it was not autobiographical. And so like just turning, talking to your book that's just come out after Anne. So it's a story about Maud. Like that's what you call her. I think that like she's Lucy Maud Montgomery, but she went by Maud, right? She went by Maud. Yes. Yeah. And so you're looking at the book and it's not sort of like a, you know, birth to death story. It's looking at specific parts of her life before, I guess, not talking about your book specifically yet, but just like set up for everybody who don't know, like what was Maud's childhood? Like, how did she get to the point that you talk about in your book? Yes. So, you know, Maud was raised in Prince Edward Island. She lost her mom at a very young age. Her mom died when she was 21 months, which having a 20-month-old right now myself um, just is so striking what that loss must have been. She lost her mom young, and then her father, who, you know, very grief-stricken, understandably, soon soon after that left her in the care of her maternal grandparents, so her mom's parents. And he was in the picture. He he continued to live on the island and visit regularly for some years. And then he moved to Prince Albert on the mainland. But he he continued to be in Maud's life. She revered him, but her primary parents became her mom's parents. And you know, they were folks who had thought that they were done with child rearing when this little girl shows up in their lives and had that, I have Scottish heritage. They they definitely had that Scottish heritage, you know, kind of hard-edged manner of raising that I think created a lot of feelings of loneliness in this very, this girl with huge dreams and incredibly smart and driven. And I think that she experienced a lot of loneliness in her childhood. Certainly, she was well-liked, but she took to diaries as a refuge really early on, which is something that I relate to. Um, I had a lot of those same feelings when I was young and was driven to write from a young age as a, as a way of expressing my deepest emotional truths. And I started writing diaries really young. Um, Ma did that as well. She ended up burning her first diary that she ever wrote which I think is just indicative of sort of how, who she was, this this really complex, interesting person who, you know, used it as a place of refuge, but then had this sense of shame around it, that it was too juvenile, that she ended up burning it later. She was very successful in school. She went to teacher's college, taught on the island for a number of years. She never really enjoyed teaching. She started to have bouts of winter melancholy, as she called them, you know, when she started teaching on the island, but she loved it because she could write, you know, it, it, it afforded her time to write and, and an income. And she started putting stories out there into the world and was, was very prolific in writing them. Her grandfather's death, in some ways, there's a mirror to um, Matthew 
passing and Anne taking care of Marilla in what Maude chose to do after her grandfather died, she went to stay with and take care of her grandmother, which gave her even more time to write. Um, she helped her grandma ma- manage the mail from the old house, but it was also a pretty isolating life. And that's where the story of After Anne begins. I was really interested in this the character on the precipice, uh, this woman on the precipice of huge success, and then what comes after that huge success. And in terms of her age as well, like she started, like she got married, what we would consider later in life, like especially for, you know, the 1900s. And then she started sort of seeing her writing success also later in life. Can you talk about like, I don't know if you know offhand, but like kind of how old she was when those things happened? Yes. So she began, you know, her process of writing Anne of Green Gables in her early 30s. It was published when she was 33. So just, you know, after her 33rd birthday. And in her 20s, you know, she was publishing regularly stories and poems. And she had the attention of male suitors. She she was not lacking for suitors. She had uh, a number of men who proposed, but she really struggled with uh, and had various levels of feelings for for these different men. But she really struggled. And I, I have her at the beginning of the book in this bind of considering whether to remain what she called a spinster and what was, known, was called at the time, you know, known known as a spinster and, and really prioritize her writing or marry. And she's in this consideration in her early 30s at that point, that was so late for marriage. You know, she'd rejected a number of these suitors or the relationships had fallen apart. And she was really, I think, you know, at her core, what was most important to her was the stream of writing. And so that was what she was pursuing most single-mindedly. And then got to this point in her early 30s, you know, she's right on the verge. She's imagining the character of Anne. She's beginning to write Anne and she's realizing it's kind of now or never. Do I marry or not? And starts to feel a lot of internal pressure. And I was so interested in what that would, you know, that feeling. I think it's something that those of us like me who've always wanted to write and are trying to juggle. I mean, it's so much in the the female experience, right? Of of trying to juggle jobs and dreams and relationships and whether to have children. And those are things that I've wrestled with so much. Those are things that she wrestled with. And so I have her at the start of the book in that kind of wrestling match. And she at that point has this suitor candidate who is a minister who is preaching in Cavendish where she's uh, where she's grown up and he you know is getting a lot of good recognition in town and he is interested in her early on but she has a lot of hesitation about being a minister's wife and what that will mean and what that will mean for her writing career she wants kids but she doesn't know that she wants to marry him and there's this real struggle and so your book is told in well, I guess it's still in kind of three time periods, if you include sort of the framing device with her sons. But you've got her struggle, like that time period is one time period Then you have kind of later in her life, seeing what she's up to. And part of that, like her journals from those eras do exist, right? But with with some exceptions, and that's part of what you're playing around with, right? Yes, yes. So she published uh, posthumously, her journals have been published. They're absolutely exquisite volumes. They were journals. She started this project of recopying her journals in 1919 in middle life. 
right? You know, end of the first world war, Spanish flu is raging. And she starts this product project of recopying her journals that she finishes, you know, at the end of her life, 1942. So it's this huge undertaking of recopying, which I just find so fascinating. And in that process, she's Certainly revising, extracting, there's evidence of her razoring out pages, even in the recopied volumes. And there's her biographer, Mary Henley Rubio, who's done this incredible biography, Lucy Maud Montgomery, The Gift of Wings, that was a huge resource to me, a fantastic book in its own right. And, you know, she talks about places where the journal record and the historical record don't quite square and where there are these these gaps and understanding. And so that was something that I was so interested in and where I felt like there was space for for a fictional imagine reimagination. Exactly. Because like the the journals exist. Like those are published. If people want to know what she's going through in those periods, like you could read that from her. But then where where there's a gap. Absolutely. And as much as possible I really hewed closely to those journals. And so, you know, wherever there is something known, I didn't, you know, come up with something unknown. It was really where where there were gaps that I found such such interest in imagining into those. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. 
Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. And we're back. Well, and I think also just as a writer, just as anyone with an imagination, that's so interesting to think about. Like, what did she not want people to know about? Those were like really interesting things, right? Like, yes, right. Especially for somebody who, I mean, these journals are on the one hand curated, on the other hand, so vulnerable, you know? And so for somebody who was so open about so much of her life. Now she did intend for them to not be published until after her death, which is another interesting thing. But but she was open, you know, she wrote journals and then wanted, intended them to be published. So what would somebody like that who had that intention hold back? You know, what would she even in that revealing want to keep hidden? I found that so interesting. And so part of what happens in her story, and I mean, this is just biographical information, it's not like spoilers for your novel, So she ends up marrying Ewan and she becomes a preacher's wife. And then he has some mental illness struggles, right? That's right. And I think that those were not known to her when they were in their courtship phase. She certainly had hesitations and she wrote some of those in her published journals and, you know, the biographer Uh, Mary Henley Rubio has said, those are some of the pages that were razored out. So even, you know, their, their proposal was something that she didn't even like her recopied version and and redid. So there's, she was certainly very careful about that historical record. I don't think that certainly not the extent of his mental health struggles later in life. Those were not things that she saw coming and they really informed so much of their, their married life together, starting from about that middle age point. This is Okay, I'm going to make a comparison just because we're recording this when we were recording this. The Queen Charlotte series has just come out on Netflix. And it's just interesting because that's also the story of like a woman involved with a man having mental health struggles and kind of how that affects the the woman and the relationship. And then Maude had her own her own struggles. I mean, again, like this is not a spoiler for your book. Like the book starts with her son like finding out that she has died by suicide. Like that is not a secret twist in the book. So knowing that that is how her story ends, you know, how is that part of your, just in writing her story? For me, that was, that was the initial question that was so striking to me. So backing up a bit, I'm, I'm somebody who's always from age 10 been driven to write and also have tremendous fear of putting my writing out there in the world. And so something that's been most helpful to me along the way is to know what other writers went through and to know that they had their own struggles and that I'm not alone in my doubts and my insecurities and the tremendous vulnerability of putting writing out there. So that's just made me somebody who always goes hunting for the story behind the story. I love to not just love a book, but to know more about the writer, the creator of that book. And so in uh, bed one night at a lake house. It was late at night and I was I was doing my one of my little digging missions for the stories of writers of, of writers whose books I love. And I learned about that note by Lucy Mom Montgomery's bedside that had been covered up for many years, that there was this note that that reads a lot like a suicide note beside her bed. 
And, you know, what could that mean? Um, and she says, you know, what an end to a life in which I tried always to do my best despite many mistakes, which, you know, to this day, it just gives me, you know, makes me feel so deeply. And to know that she'd written such a life affirming character, one of my favorite characters in fiction, and, you know, that that her life ended in this way in which, you know, she says that nobody would imagine what her struggles have been. So, you know, she's she's saying in that note that there's a lot that she hadn't revealed at the end of her life. And and that was so poignant, so striking to me. And I just found myself, I really wanted to know more. I really wanted to understand her emotionally and to understand the ups and downs of her life. Because I think, you know, when we tell this, when we learn about author's success and we know about Lucy Ma Montgomery's tremendous success, her fame, her celebrity, that's one thing. But I think sometimes that actually can can hurt inspiration because it makes it seem like it's impossible or like, you know, it will never measure up to to that person. But to know the full story of somebody's life, because we all have struggles, we all have things we go through. I think that can be even more inspiring. And so I went into her story with that goal. And that was information that I think this was in your the afternoon or something in your book, like the family kept hidden that this was her cause of death until I think it was 2008, they publicly revealed it, right? Yes, that's right. And, you know, to be fair, it's it's the probable, the, you know, based on the evidence that we know cause of death, and based on the fact that that note was there by her bedside, and that, um, you know, and what we know about the end of her life including her writing in one of her final little and uh, final passages in her published journals, I shall be driven to end my life. So, you know, there's, there's good evidence for that. It's a really interesting, like having read an, an early copy of your book, I think that you do such a really respectful and interesting job of looking at her as a whole person, not defining her by, like you start off being like, this is probably how she died. But then you're looking at who is this person? And it's not like, a tragic story. It's not like a sad story. It's like, who was she? And this is what happened at the end. Like, so I think you did a really good job of balancing that to, yeah. So just, I don't know. Congratulations. Like, and I I want the listeners to not think like, oh, this is going to be like a sad book. It's not at all. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that was not at all my, my intention. And I, so, I so deeply admire and respect Maud and her life has informed mine in so many ways. I'm so grateful for that. And I really, I wanted to uncover who this, who this person was and have so much compassion for where she was, you know, at the start of the, of my book, at you know, the precipice of becoming the famous author and so much compassion for who she was and, and where she was at the end of her life too. And I think part of what I'm going to guess, I guess I'll ask you because you wrote the book, but part of what that balance is, is that it's not like a chronological story. Like you're going back and forward in time, like from that time period where she's deciding to get married, she wants to publish a book and then what her life is later. So you're flipping back and forth. So it's not just kind of like her life was like this and this and this and this. It's, which I think also helps represent like she was not just one thing. Was that, that was part of your decision in having the the dual time periods? Yes, it was, it was very much to show you know, her complex, you know, multifaceted self. And it was also, I really, I wanted, I did not want the book to end with the tragic note of her death alone. That certainly 
a note and a component of her life. But I, I love the idea of coming back to this seminal weekend um, of her life when she's really in this struggle of a decision of, you know, do I marry and sacrifice some things or do I really, you know, pursue my writing and only my writing for the rest of my life? And that, I think, is such an interesting decision, a relatable one to many of us today. And I think that it just, it's, you know, going back and forth between that weekend and then what happened after. I hoped that there were, you know, resonances where those timelines would speak to each other and create an emotional depth that, you know, wouldn't be as easily obtained by just having one straight timeline. And I think also, like you were saying, you know, you like reading the stories of of writers and how did they get to where they were and like what their struggles were and stuff. And I think part of her story that I find, like not just as a writer myself, but like as just as a person who's like living in like my middle age to see that she started what some people would consider older, right? Like not just marrying and having children, but she's, her success came to her in her like mid thirties and then like on through the next couple of decades. And I think there's a lot of pressure, especially now. I don't know, you know, there's things like it's the 30 under 30 lists or like this author just published her first book and she's 20. Like there's so much pressure, I think, on people to succeed at a very young age. But she is so beloved. She was so successful. And she, she, when was Anne Green Gables published? Like she was in her, what did you say, 33 or something like that? Yes. Which, you know, in, in modern day equivalent, that would be more like mid 40s, right? In terms of lifespan and, and where she was in her life. And yes, I love stories like that. I love to know that, you know, success could come at any point. And I find that to be really deeply reassuring too. And so that was, that was a key piece. And also that story of, you know, a a choice to marry can be a really complicated one. And it can happen kind of at any time in life. That's a, that's a key piece of her story too. I think also like, aside from her being based on a real person and those are her experiences, it's rare to me in my reading to read about a character who's this age, like characters in books are often 25 or something like that. So it's just interesting to read about someone who had, who is a bit more, has lived through some stuff, like at the point where she's deciding even whether she wants to marry, like she's not a young, naive 20 year old. Like she's someone who's lived a life and knows what it's like and knows, knows what it's like to not be married. So I appreciated just reading about, and I guess in contrast to the fact her most famous character, like Anne Shirley grows up, but She's most famous as an 11-year-old. So it's, it's I don't know. So it's just nice to read about a woman in her middle years, I guess. That's that's rare to me in my experience as a reader. It is. And that's interesting that you say it. I'm so interested in that middle life period. And Maude was open about her struggles in writing and in middle age. She said she got bored of her in middle age. And if you look at her her fiction... There are so many young characters, there are so many old characters, and she had such joy, I think, in creating those those ages. And there's many components to that. But one that's occurred to me when I've been reflecting is that, you know, you can make an old person or a young person much more unfiltered, right, and fun. And they are too old to care or too young to care about other people's opinions in many ways, or at least more so. And so I think she could have so much fun with that. But 
you know, she was really caught up in her whole life with this bind of other, other people's opinions and her own internal struggles about what to keep private, what to reveal. And that to me is so much of middle life. Right. And, and something that I very much relate to being in that stage myself. And that's where the fascination lies, but it's also really hard to capture. And I could tell you, I, I wrote and rewrote this book many times, really trying to each time understand Maude more deeply, you know, get at her character more deeply. And I think a lot of why the process took so long was the fact that in middle age, people are, people are complicated. I have a, I don't know, just a fun question for you. So what are your favorite Ella Montgomery books, having read all of them? Oh my gosh. The original Anne is just my absolute favorite and will always be. Uh, But I really love the story girl too. And that's one where I have lines underlined that I come back to. And, you know, her journals, if, if I could recommend that those who know something of her or like her work, read anything, it would be her journals. I found them, you know, you would, you would think they might be, there are many, it's a voluminous set of journals. And so it's a big undertaking, but they are really compelling reads in their own right. So, and I think that's like the, her writing is so revered and so beloved. But that's why I wanted to ask you that because a lot of people might have only read Anne or maybe only read a couple of the Anne books, but just to know that she's written, you said what, 29 books? 20 novels. Yeah. So there's a whole, I don't want to be on this podcast and be like, read Lucy Maud Montgomery's books. They should read your book <laughs> and also Lucy Maud Montgomery's books. I think that they work really well in concert. And I think that if you read her books, then they can really see a lot of what you're doing because you clearly like these stories and the journals, like they're in your bones. You're not, I think people would notice probably if they read both, like a lot of the things you're referencing. I hope so. And I would absolutely recommend that anyone read both. And so your book is, when this episode comes out, it's being released. And so where can people follow you to see like, if you're having events or anything like that? Do you have a website or social media? I do. Uh, my website is logansteiner.com. L-O-G-A-N-S-T-E-I-N-E-R.com. All of the events are listed there. And I do have an event on PEI that I'm so excited about. August 26th, I will be at the uh, Charlottetown Library with the bookmark and speaking there. And I'm so excited to have an event on the island. That's so wonderful. And also that's wonderful, first of all, just for you to get to go there and to have that event and to be around people who like love Ella Montgomery the same that you do. But also just book events often I find are in like Chicago or Los Angeles or, you know, like they're in major American cities. So it's nice to Charlottetown. So people who are there can come and see you as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, And my visit there will be always cemented in my memory. I just loved the island. I'm so happy to have a chance to go back. Well, thank you so much for for talking to me about your book and like the best of luck with all of this, your book tour and publication week and everything. Thank you so much, Anne. It's been wonderful to talk to you. So again, Logan's novel is called After Anne, and you should be able to buy that anywhere where you get your books from. If you want to buy a copy and support this podcast, you can use the link in the show notes to go to uh, bookshop.org because a little percentage of all the books you buy through that link 
goes to support me and the show. And other ways you can support me in the show are you can follow us on Instagram at Vulgar History Pod. And also I'm on TikTok at Vulgar History. And you can also support me on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash Anne Foster Writer, then there you can choose to make a monthly donation. So anywhere from $1 to, to more, more than $1, but joining the Patreon. So you will get for the $1 or more per month donation, you get access to early, early access to all the episodes of Vulgar History, ad-free episodes there as well. Um, if you join for at least $2 or more a month and you get, there's some polls, I ask questions sometimes that helps me decide sometimes what I'm going to talk about on the podcast. And then if you pledge $5 or more per month and you get access to our, the bonus episodes that are only on Patreon. So that's Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk about costume dramas. The most recent one that I think should be there now is we talked about The Woman King starring Viola Davis, which was a movie I liked a whole lot. Asterix some historical things were changed in that. And we talk about it in the podcast. And then the other bonus episodes I do in there, or I do so this asshole where I talk about men from history who make me mad um, in terms of Mary Queen of Scots, which we're talking about this season. I have an episode there about Darnley. I have an episode there about um, her other husband, Bothwell. I have an episode about her son, James. I have an episode about Henry VIII. Just as I'm researching when somebody makes me mad, I put them on blast in a So This Asshole episode. There's also um, So These Guys, where I talk about people from history who are maybe not assholes or who are kind of lovable assholes. So I did one about the Bush Rangers of Australia. Anyway, that's all on Patreon. I'm not being like, you have to do all these things. It's like, listen to this podcast. That's great. And then if you want to further engage, those are just other ways you could do that. And yeah, and then there's the new and improved store, which if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash store, there's all the gorgeous new merch designed by actual human artists. Beautiful. We've got Where Is Your God Now? John Knox stickers, t-shirts. We've got um, the Renaissance Reformation Girl Squad reimagined to kind of look like the logo of the Babysitter's Club. Lots of things there. Anyway, I'm, I'm not mentioning them all here, but if you go to vulgarhistory.com slash store, there's so many great stickers, t-shirts, mugs and stuff you can get from there. And... And yeah, so I'll be talking to you again next Wednesday with the next chapter of the Mary Queen of Scots episode. And until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.